Welcome to the Feminine Empowerment Podcast. Before we get started, I just want to mention really quickly that there is a donation button on the home page of the podcast. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider clicking that donation button and contributing to help me continue to make this amazing content. I would really appreciate that. So today's episode is a beautiful presentation of the nature of God in which women can fully relate to. In our Western male-dominated religious tradition, the representations of the feminine divine have been downplayed and even hidden. So you're probably not even aware that in your own Bible, both the Old and New Testament, there are representations of a feminine God. In both Canaanite and ancient Israelite tradition, Atirat and Asherah played an extremely prominent role as a mother goddess. The supreme god El was spoken of with Atirat at his side as his wife. Later, Yahweh, the god of Israel, was spoken of with Asherah at his right hand. Atirat and Asherah were associated with or symbolized by sacred trees. Unfortunately, these depictions of worship of the goddess Asherah have been considered apostate and idolatrous worship in later times. But we're going to evaluate whether this is true or whether it was just a way to cover up the divine feminine. As religion solidified, Asherah was marginalized more and more in scripture until she was eventually reduced to a cult object instead of the divine goddess at the right hand of Yahweh where she was originally worshipped. There are multiple indications in biblical tradition that many in ancient Israel did regard Asherah's cult icon as an appropriate and sacred symbol within the religion of Yahweh. Thankfully, in more modern times, discoveries now indicate that the ancient Israelites actually believed that the worship of Yahweh and Asherah as a pair was appropriate, as they were considered husband and wife. Asherah was worshipped as the queen of heaven. Archaeological evidence from ancient temples shows us that the God worshipped by the Israelites, known by the name of Yahweh, was worshipped alongside his wife, Asherah. All energies in the universe exist in pairs. This also points us to the reality that this necessary pairing of energy also exists in a divine pair, a god and a goddess. We see the balance of feminine energy and masculine energy in every aspect of our lives. This same feminine and masculine energy is also found in God. Without a balance of masculine and feminine, life could not even exist or be maintained. So for example, we have the masculine sun and the feminine night. We have the masculine active day and feminine rest and sleep. Masculine is dry. Feminine is the element of water. Masculine energy is erratic. Feminine energy is flowing. Masculine sound is loud. Feminine sound is soft. Masculine is heat. Feminine is cold. So, for example, if we don't balance the masculine activity of the day with the feminine rest and sleep of the night, what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. 
we would experience the following progression of symptoms. Muscular exhaustion, reduced physical performance, impaired cognitive function, impaired immune function, increased risk of heart attack and stroke, impaired healing, depression, anxiety, memory loss, faulty brain function leading to hallucinations and ultimately psychosis. This is only one example that if we do not balance masculine activity with feminine rest, we end up in psychosis. And this is what happens in all of nature. It requires both a masculine and feminine to create life. Our very existence requires both a mother and a father. We cannot exist without one or the other. Once we are born, we require a balance of both masculine and feminine energy in order to maintain proper health and even sustain our life. We couldn't have only the masculine dry because without water, which is feminine, you would die. If heat went unchecked by a balance of cooling, we would overheat and we would also die. Without a balance of these masculine and feminine energies in spirituality, we create spiritual imbalance, which becomes harmful. So we see the negative effects of masculine dominating religions, sexual abuse by clergy and religious leaders. Why do I say that? Because hypersexuality is an excessive masculine energy. Oppression of women, violence, such as the Crusades for one example, excessive control, example, chastity belts, or overarching non-biblical religious rules, high demand religions that have excessive demands on their followers, overvaluation of sacrifice and toxic positivity where they don't allow for self-care or emotions. Church leadership must have a balance of both masculine and feminine in order to function in a healthy and balanced manner. The more male-dominated the religion, the more oppression of women and tolerance of violence that we see. We see a prime example of this in the most extremist Muslim groups, where we see total acceptance of sexual violence and violence in general. In the United States, sexual violence in marriage was not illegal until the 1990s. So a man who raped his wife or committed sexual violence toward her it wasn't considered a, pro a crime until the 1990s. This is very representative of male-dominated religion and male-dominated society. If you do not balance the masculine and feminine, you will always have issues. Let's get back to finding the feminine divine in history. So in the earliest Hebrew traditions, the deity named El was considered the God of Israel. And what most Christians don't realize is that El had a divine wife, who is the goddess called Atirat. When the name Yahweh came to be used to denote the God of Israel, Atirat was then given a Hebrew name, and that name was Asherah. And it is hard for modern Christians to even accept the reality of a female goddess, because patriarchy runs very deep in our tr religious traditions. The denial that a woman could be divine or worthy of worship runs very deep. So deep, in fact, that even women themselves will viciously uphold the patriarchal traditions that have oppressed them throughout the ages. When it is said that we were created in the image of God, women, 
You were not created in the image of a man. You were created in the image of a divine woman. I know it's hard to embrace this vision because your Bible has been translated to be palatable for your Western male-dominated religion. Yes, translators have in fact changed meanings in the Bible to fit their own chauvinistic worldview. Modern scientists have made amazing discoveries to support the original biblical texts about a female goddess. Many women are completely unaware that in 1975 in Kuntilet Ajrud, several objects that feature the supreme god Yahweh alongside the goddess Asherah were discovered. At this same site, several other artifacts, such as broken pieces of pottery. Now, I want you to realize these broken pieces of pottery was, wasn't just decorative. They were regularly used as a surface for writing. And these pieces of pottery, there were found messages indicating a connection of the god Yahweh to the goddess Asherah. There were two messages on this pottery that stood out beautifully. And to quote the first one, I bless you to Yahweh of Samaria and to his Asherah. Samaria was actually in this context referring to the central region of Israel. And the second one was, I bless you to Yahweh of Taman and his, to his Asherah. This phrase Yahweh and his Asherah was so commonplace that it actually appears in the Hebrew Bible. The name Asherah is found in the Hebrew Bible dozens of times in various contexts. Most of these ancient inscriptions ask for the blessing of Yahweh and Asherah together. This fact adds credence to the belief that Asherah was in fact the wife of God. Asherah appears in the Bible in Exodus, Chronicles, Kings, and Judges, where the names Asherah, Atirat are used among the people. It is also important to note that in the book of Jeremiah, Asherah is referred to as the queen of heaven, and this reference is made twice in the book of Jeremiah. Modern Christian religions try to relegate Asherah to idol worship, but the book of Jeremiah actually provides us with a completely different reality that Asherah was not just some cult icon. As we read Jeremiah, we come to realize that God was disappointed in the use of Asherah in idol worship. It wasn't that she was just a cult icon that God was angry with them worshiping Asherah herself. They were using the sacred feminine divine and denigrating her through their idol worship. And this is why God was upset. We must realize that it was the superstitious beliefs of the people of the time that led them to create idols, figures, and statues that they used in idol worship. Women were making offerings to these idols and figures of Asherah in an effort to appease other false gods. It is because of these false traditions of the people and their inappropriate use of Asherah in their idol worship that made it easy for the priests who compiled the Hebrew Bible to simply remove all references to Asherah and denigrate her to idol worship. It is the consensus of many biblical scholars that the priests who compiled compiled the Hebrew Bible intentionally removed all references to Asherah, or at least they tried to. 
Thankfully, and most likely due to the grace and mercy of God, they were not successful in their attempts to remove all reference to her. The Bible does provide us with the insight that Asherah was in fact worshipped in the temple of Jerusalem alongside God. She was worshipped as his divine equal. An example of this is in the book of Kings, where rituals were regularly done to worship her. We have many references in the Bible that hint at the marital relationship between God and Asherah. We cannot dismiss the reality that Asherah, the queen of heaven, existed in the Hebrew Bible. The evidence of this is abundantly clear. She is part of a divine pair. She stands beside the all-powerful and the all-knowing God of Israel. So J. Edward Wright, who is the president of the Arizona Center of Judaic Studies and the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research, actually discussed this topic with Discovery News. He makes it very clear in this interview that the Hebrew inscriptions do in fact mention Yahweh and his Asherah. He goes on to state that Asherah was not entirely edited out of the Bible by its male editors. Quote, traces of her remain, and based on those traces, archaeological evidence and reference to her in texts from nations bordering Israel and Judah, we can reconstruct her role in the religions of the southern Levant, end quote. Wright also stated that many of the English translations of the Bible prefer to translate Asherah as a sacred tree. He explains that the reasoning behind removing her name and referencing her just as a tree is due to modern Christianity, preferring to hold their narrative and Asherah, as he says, quote, to hide Asherah behind a veil once again, end quote. Another fact that most Christians are completely unaware of is that the worship of Asherah was introduced into the Jerusalem temple by King Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon. He introduced this around 928 BC. There was a statue of Asherah present in Solomon's temple, and her worship was considered legitimate. It was considered a legitimate part of the religion approved and led by the king, along with the court and even the priesthood. This worship of Asherah occurred for at least 230 years. According to Biblical Archaeology Review, quote, It isn't that the mother god was absent from their worship. Rather, she was consciously eradicated from worship by the religious authorities, end quote. There is a blessing that is actually found in a very early rendition of Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 2 and 3. This early rendition that includes Yahweh and his Asherah was seen before the goddess Asherah had been subordinated and removed. As all women in Judeo-Christian tradition have been, she was fully erased and her existence is denied. We see in our current Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 2 and 3, and it says, quote, He shone from the Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of of myriads of holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning before them, end quote, or excuse me, flashing lightning for them, end quote. But the original ancient text of Deuteronomy 33, verses 2 and 3 reads, quote, Yahweh came from Sinai and shone forth 
at his right hand, his own Ashra, end quote. It was not flashing lightning that was at his right hand. It was his Ashra, the feminine divine who was at his right hand. It makes sense. It just makes sense that the divine feminine was at his right hand. In some translations, Ashra refers to a tree or a grove, which is a sacred symbol of fertility and a nurturing figure, which is also a representation of Ashra. Those of us who were raised in a Judeo-Christian tradition may struggle to accept the factual reality that the singular white male deity that we worship at one time in history had a wife. You may struggle within yourself with this reality because all you have ever known is a white male God. And anyone who dared to even hint at anything other than him was accused of blasphemy. There was a treasure trove of cuneiform text found in the port city of Ugarit in today's northern Syria. In these texts, Asherah is prominently depicted as the wife of El, the supreme god. For hundreds of years before Abraham migrated to Israel, Asherah was revered and worshipped as Atirat, earth mother and fertility goddess. The ancient Israelites also worshipped a female goddess and gave her the Hebrew name Asherah. During this excavation in northern Syria in 1928, Asherah came into our awareness once again. She had been erased from our consciousness because of a male-dominated patriarchal society that could not allow a woman to hold such a place as a divine being. Historians and archaeologists have pieced together the history of Asherah from artifacts and writings found in the region, as well as from the Hebrew Bible. Current evidence suggests that Asherah was observed in Israel and Judah from very early in history up until just before the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah in approximately 588 BC. The word Elohim, which is used to denote God in the Bible, most Christians are probably aware of this word. But did you know that it is actually a plural form of the word God? Let me say that again. The word Elohim, which is used in, to denote God in the Bible, is a plural form of the word El or Eloah. The word El or Eloah means supreme God in a singular form. But the word Elohim is the word God in a plural form. A lot of Christians might start getting a little shifty in their seats, a little uncomfortable with this. But the first word for God in your Bible is seen in the book of Genesis. How many Christians talk about Adam and Eve, talk about Genesis all the time? But did you know that the first word used for God in your Bible in the book of Genesis is Elohim? which is the plural word for God. When it states that God created the heavens and the earth, it is actually using a plural word for God. In the context of El, or the supreme God, having a wife named Atirat, or Asherah, we can easily make the assumption, and I'm making it here, that the plural word for God used in this place of the Bible indicates that both God the Father and his wife, God the Mother, created the earth. Make no mistake that the original word used for God 
in Genesis was a plural word for God who created the earth according to the original biblical text. And you cannot argue that. When we move on to another word used in the Old Testament to represent God, El Shaddai. The literal translation or direct translation of this word would be mighty teat or the God with breasts. This literal translation obviously would not go over very well with Western Christian religions because God has to be a white male, that's all. So, to make this text more palatable to Western Christian translators, they took a more loose translation of this word, and so it is written as God Almighty in the English translation, even though that is not what this word actually means. So to give an even greater context to the idea that this word is actually indicating a female deity or the feminine divine, let's look at where this word for God is used in the Bible, El Shaddai. You will see very quickly that this word is used in relation to fertility. Instead of using the more literal translation of the God with breasts from here on out, I'm just going to use the term female God. So the first place we see this is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. And God tells Abram, I am El Shaddai. And subsequently reiterates the covenant between God and Abram, focusing on Abram's fertility or that he is going to be um, the father of nations type of a, you know, this is kind of what they're focusing on here. But we're using a female God, a reference to a female God in relation to fertility and having children. Very interesting. Let's move on. Genesis chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. In addition to, uh, for fertility context, in this one, um, we have, I am El Shaddai, and subsequently then reiterates the covenant between God and Abram. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Isaac. Sorry, we're in Isaac. My phone was making noise. So in Genesis 28, verses 3 and 4, Isaac blesses Jacob in the name of El Shaddai and emphasizes that this God will make Jacob fruitful and numerous with multiple offspring. So we're talking about a fertility concept, uh, concept here as well. And we're using the word El Shaddai for God, which is a female term. And then we move on to Genesis 35, verse 11. God appears to Jacob as El Shaddai and commands him to be fruitful and multiply. So here we are again with Jacob, and we are talking about fertility and referencing a female God. In Genesis 43, verse 14, Jacob sends his sons back to Egypt with Benjamin and asks that El Shaddai return Joseph and Benjamin to him. So this is not overtly about fertility, Jacob views Joseph, though, and Benjamin as his true progeny, and he's fearing losing them. So in this case, we're referencing children, again, and using a female term for God. In Genesis 48, verses 3 and 4, Jacob relates what happened to him at Luz when El Shaddai appears to him. So again, El Shaddai, a female reference to God. We move on to Genesis 49, verse 25. 
by the God of your father who will help you, by Shaddai, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Again, we're seeing female references and blessings from Shaddai. And the last one that we're going to be talking about is Ruth, chapter 1, and it's verses 20 and 21. Naomi bitterly speaks of how Shaddai has dealt bitterly with her, depriving her of fertility and of children. So again, we're talking at a female reference to God in relation to fertility and having children. A female goddess, this idea usually freaks people out. It makes them very uncomfortable. But if indeed El Shaddai indicates a female god, isn't that an amazing concept coming from a very patriarchal culture? As we read these verses that reference El Shaddai, we see a goddess who bestows fertility, takes away fertility, and gives the blessing of children. Fertility and giving birth are predominantly feminine traits. It makes sense that we are referencing a female god. In these verses, we see that the god El Shaddai, or a deity who represents both masculine and feminine, in our closed-minded and male-dominated religious tradition, we only hear of one possible name for God and only one possible gender. In our ignorance of the Old Testament due to priests who used their religious station when compiling the Old Testament removed any reference to a female deity, we've lost our connection to the true nature of God. If a very patriarchal society in ancient times used both masculine and feminine metaphors and names for God, even using the name El Shaddai, why are we so very uncomfortable with a feminine idea about God or even a feminine deity in her own right? We have discussed references to the feminine divine in the Old Testament Many may dismiss this as idol worship or some weird ancient idea that did not carry into the New Testament. Not so fast. We're actually going to move into feminine references relating to deity in the New Testament. And I want to make it very clear that the ones that I have written are not the only ones, only references in the New Testament. There are just a few of them. I'm not going to spend hours on end making references to this. So we're just going to take a few of them. So in Matthew 23, 37, we see the feminine reference as Christ uses the phrase, as a hen gathers her chicks. If we claim to believe in the literal Bible as the inerrant word of God, but we staunchly proclaim that we can only use masculine images or pronouns for God, we're not really being biblical. If we limit ourselves to male-gendered language about God, we have created God in our own image. It is actually in English translations that God is always assigned masculine pronouns and is always depicted as male. This is not the case in the Hebrew Bible. In modern Western theology and Christianity, only masculine language is allowed when referring to God. We must come to the realization that this narrow-minded view of God is in fact biblically unfounded. When we use the title God the Father, This does not define the essence of who God is, but is merely metaphorical language indicating a relation to God that our human brains can relate to. It was never meant to define the actual nature of God as only masculine. Just as on earth, male and female are necessary for the creation of life, 
Masculine and feminine aspects are needed in all things to create life itself and to create harmony and balance in all of creation. The language we choose to use to describe God does not change God. However, it does affect our relationship with God and how we interact with God. The more we limit the language and symbols we use to describe God, we in turn lessen our own understanding of God and the reality of God that can be revealed to us. Our ability to understand the fullness of the true nature of God becomes narrow and limited or expansive and vast with the language we are willing to embrace when speaking of God. When we fail to recognize all of the feminine characteristics used to describe God's relationship with us, we fail to realize that there is, in fact, a feminine aspect of God. So I'm going to list some of these in the Old Testament and some of these in the New Testament. In Numbers 11, verse 12, Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child? to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors. So we're talking about conception, giving birth, uh, nursing a child. This is all feminine reference. In Isaiah 66, verse 13, As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So again, we are talking feminine. I will comfort you as a mother comforts her child. We are talking about a feminine relationship. We have another one in Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Again, a relationship, we're talking about a relationship to a mother, not a father, a mother. We look at Deuteronomy 32, 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. All of these examples from the Old Testament use imagery to paint a feminine picture of God as a mother. As we read both the Old and New Testament, we will see mother-like imagery when speaking of our relationship with God in the Old Testament and our relationship with Christ in the New Testament. So the New Testament. In 1 John 4, 7, it says, born of God. Birth is a feminine image. Of God. In 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Oh, that by it you may grow into salvation. Again, here we see God being portrayed as a nursing mother. This is in the New Testament. Matthew 23, 37, as a hen gathereth her chicks. Jesus is indicating his desire to gather Israel to himself, but we are seeing a feminine analogy of a mother figure. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, we see the same statement, as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. Another hen mother gathering her children. We are seeing a lot of references to a feminine God here. In Proverbs 8, wisdom speaks. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, 
When he made firm the skies above, I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. And now my children listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. The Hebrew word here is chokma, and in Greek, Sophia, which is described as working with God rather than a metaphor to describe a characteristic of God. We may misunderstand this passage because it is simply not clear in our English translation, translation that the grammar of this passage in Hebrew is actually feminine, and it is describing a feminine persona, Sophia. Sophia is described as being present at the creation of the world. We do not define God and should not try to create God after our own image or likeness. Men have chosen to create God in their own image as a white male that dominates everything alone and creates life without a woman and without a woman's involvement, which makes common sense take pause. Men are quite arrogant in their assumption that God can only be in their image and that women have no part in deity or divinity at all. There is nothing blasphemous about choosing to call God our mother as well as our father as it takes both to create life. This does nothing to alter the nature of God. It only expands our language and understanding of the true nature of God. When we allow ourselves to find God our mother this opens a new door of connection to God, especially for women who can connect with the feminine, motherly nature of God as the feminine divine. Women can then truly see themselves as being created in the true image of God because naturally we would be created in the image of a woman. I don't look like a man. Being created in the image of a woman with all the divine feminine attributes physically and in our very nature of a woman. Every person born on this earth has a mother. We could not exist without a mother. And therefore, we can enhance our relationship with God when we connect to God on a motherly level. And we see this in the New Testament. A hen gathering her chicks, giving birth, nursing mothers. We see all of this imagery of a feminine aspect of God throughout the Bible, and yet we try to ignore it and say, no, God can only be masculine. This imagery as God as a mother is already present in the Bible in many passages and can be used to help us further connect with God. When we deny the existence of the feminine divine and demand that God only be acknowledged as male, this weakens women's connection to God. Men have a connection to God as they see themselves in God because their very essence of being male and their view of God being male allows them to have a fundamental connection and understanding of themselves. A man as a father can see that re reflection of himself in God as a father as well. I don't think we realize how important and powerfully connecting it is for us to see ourselves reflected in the image of God. Women have been completely deprived of this deeper connection to God 
because we have erased all feminine references to God and therefore have limited our understanding of the nature of God as well as limited women's ability to see their fundamental nature as women and mothers being reflected in God as well. When we ignore the many feminine references to God, erase the feminine divine in Ataret and Ashra in preference of a male-only God, this then implies that women are lesser because God is male and men are more reflective of the nature of God than women are. This is an extremely damaging ideology to the whole of society. We won't go into this much today, but many of the interpretations of Paul's letters have been wildly misrepresented what was actually being said, which further subjugates women. Men demand the subjugation of women, demand that women must obey their husbands and treat women as if they are mere objects to serve men rather than entirely whole and divinely created beings that they are. Women were created in the image of God just as men were, meaning there is a feminine aspect of God in whose image women were created. We cannot hold that God is male and therefore men are somehow more reflective of God than women are. This is not supported biblically. If women were also created in the image of God, then God is reflected in both male and female. If female is an image of God as women were created in the image of God, then God is not only represented to us as male from the very beginning. In Genesis, we learn fundamentally God is represented in both male and female, period. The word Elohim tells us it is a plural word, meaning more than one God. By diminishing half of all humankind who were also created in the image of God is to dim our understanding of the divine reality and true nature of God. A quote from an article written by Ramshaw Schmidt, De Divinis Nomnibus, The Gender of God, creates a beautiful argument for broader language in relation to God. Quote, Theological sensitivity in explicating analogical language frees us from distortions and helps point to the glory of God. If we would grant often in our speech that he is wholly inadequate as a personal pronoun in referring to God, much of our difficulty would be lessened. Instead, we hear vociferous defense of this masculine designation as if it were some way true. End quote. In our narrow-minded and male-dominated society, we have shaped our understanding of the nature of God to fit that what Western men are comfortable with. As we limit God and our understanding of God to solely masculine, we blind ourselves to all the ways in which we connect with God. Women are then belittled and subjugated in the minds of men, and rightfully so, because it is only their gender that embodies deity, while women have no power, no authority, and no divinity as that can only be found in masculinity and being male. This is an absolute distortion of the biblical God and negatively impacts the way we interact with one another in society, as well as how men interact with women and view women in religion and society as a whole. We need to break down this unbiblical narrative we have created around God so we can change the damaging way in which our religions view and treat women. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. I hope that you have enjoyed this kind of broadening of your understanding of God. I know it definitely stretches that understanding, but I hope that you are open-minded enough to listen and receive this. 
I am going to go over the letters from Paul. We're going to discuss that. We're going to discuss biblical womanhood. We're going to discuss all of those things in future podcasts. So please subscribe and um, get the notifications of those upcoming episodes because I am sure that you are going to want to hear them. Thank you so much for listening. And just as a reminder, if you liked this episode, please go ahead and donate to the podcast to help me create more of this amazing content for you. And I will see you next time.